Okay, please rise for the reading of God's Word. We are in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 15. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Bible, Bible, here's a Bible. We're here, Matthew chapter 15. We're going through the book of Matthew, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Verse 15. Verse 15. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that we would uh, leave this morning marveling at at your son Jesus, marveling at your goodness, marveling at uh, your truth, Lord God. And uh, Lord, how we need in this world, um, with just so much out there, Lord, just to bring us down, how, how we need you, Lord God, to to marvel at something, Lord, and, and I just pray, Father, uh, that you would guide us and lead us by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Okay, Matthew 22, verse 15. So on the Christian calendar, today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is meant to commemorate when the time when Jesus rode into Jerusalem just a few days before he died on the cross and the multitude who greeted him uh, threw their clothes on the ground and uh, palm branches on the ground for him to uh, ride over. And this was a common practice at the time for receiving a king. People were probably waving the palm branches as well. That was a something they did in the Old Testament uh, to rejoice, waving palm branches. And the people shouted, Hosanna, as Jesus uh, rode into the city. And Hosanna is, it's a Hebrew word. It's from uh, Psalm 118. And they were actually singing and crying out this psalm as uh, Jesus was riding into the uh, city. And uh, specifically, they were uh, singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed he is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that word, Hosanna, it's translated literally, save us now, I beg you. That's the word. That's what the word Hosanna means. Save us now, I beg you. Never forget that Jesus came to save you. Never forget that. Jesus came to save you. It's true that he was a great example of a human being. He was a great, righteous man. He was a 
courageous man. He was an ethical man, but that's not why he left the glories of heaven. He left the glories of heaven to save you, to save you. His very name, Jesus, means Jehovah saves. Jesus came to save you. Can there be really any doubt that the world needs a Savior? Just turning on the uh, local news, and in 15 minutes it becomes plainly evident. Man is at war with each other. He is at war with himself, and he's at war with God. And the Bible says that we actually came out of the womb that way. Now, some of you have newborn children like, yeah, I can understand that. But, uh, uh, but really, that is, that is theologically true. Not only do our scrying, crying, screaming babies look like that, it says it's like that deep in their hearts. That we're like that deep in our hearts, even as we come out of the womb. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says uh, that we are, are by our very nature children of wrath. At war with each other, at war with ourselves, at war with God. Children of wrath, which means children of judgment or deserving of God's uh, judgment. Not a very pleasant thought. Children of wrath. But the Bible teaches that disobeying God is, it's not supremely, uh, it's not a learned behavior. Sometimes our psychiatrists try to convince us of that. It's not supremely that. No, it's supremely something that we were born with that is deep in, in our heart. And the Bible says that every human being, boy and girl, has been given a conscience, and every one of, uh, of them, every one of us, gets to the point in our life where we realize we're at war with God. And we need a Savior. And something very glorious happened uh, 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday. You actually had uh, thousands of people who were receiving Jesus. And and the Pharisees were looking on, and they said, oh, the whole world has gone after this guy. What are we going to do? There was a lot of them. But they had recognized that they needed a Savior, that they couldn't save themselves, that they were incapable of saving themselves. And not only did they realize they couldn't save themselves, they realized there was only one who could save them, and that person was right in front of them. The saddest creature on the face of the earth is a man or a woman who has convinced himself or herself that he doesn't need a Savior. A man who has ignored all the warning signs, all hundred thousand of them that God puts up in our life as we go through life. God's faithful to put up warning signs. You need a Savior. A man or a woman who has just walked right by those and has just convinced uh, himself that he doesn't need a Savior. He doesn't need God. He, he can do it on his own. 
the happiest creature on the face of the earth is the man or woman who realizes he or she needs a Savior, uh, discovers who that Savior is, and then discovers that Savior is right in front of their eyes. And that is what happened to hundreds, if not thousands, of men and women uh, 2,000 years ago on this Palm Sunday. And so there's just this great joy. Actually, it was the Passover time, which is supposed to be a solemn, uh, sort of sad Uh, it's not really the right word, but a solemn time, a serious time. Uh, But instead, they were waving palm branches, which was really associated with a completely different feast in Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a feast of rejoicing. But they they saw Jesus coming on a donkey, just as the uh, prophet Zechariah said the Messiah could, and they just grabbed these, spontaneously grabbed these palm branches and were just waving them with joy. So what a, what a wonderful, glorious time that was where people realized they needed a Savior, and here he was. So the uh, great multitude uh, throwing their clothes and branches onto the, onto the road, and here is their Savior King. But as we have been talking about the last couple of weeks, not everyone greeted him with uh, rejoicing. Uh, some were afraid. Some were fearful. They were afraid of what it meant to give their life to this king. They didn't want to give up their war with God. That's what it really meant. The war that was raging in their hearts. And so in Matthew 21, verse 23... They came to Jesus and said uh, to him, asked him, by what authority are you doing all these things? I mean, Jesus had just come through the temple as if it was his temple. He had come into the city as if it was his city or something. He goes through the temple and he knocks over all the, ta- uh, all the uh, tables and money changers and merchants selling things and, and they see all these people scatter. Does this guy own the temple or something? By what authority do you do these things, they asked. He doesn't uh, answer them directly, but goes on to say some parables. And uh, eventually they just uh, realize that in the parables, he's he's really, he's convicted them about really the fact that they are the ones who are rejecting the Messiah. And eventually they leave, but in verse 15 they come back. And it says the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk and sent him Uh, their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth and nor do you care about anyone. And when it says nor do you care about anyone, all that means is he he wasn't a respecter of persons. He he didn't treat people based upon their uh, position. And then it says, You do not regard the, uh, the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, these, the Herodians and the uh, Pharisees, they're very strange bedfellows. I mean, 
this is like having, you know, hearing a knock on your door and you answer it, and who's there but, you know, Ted Kennedy and Pat Buchanan, you know, they're sitting in front of you, and it's like, what? What are these two doing together? And they both have a smile on their face, or, or you know, a hippie and an uh, army officer or something like that, and that's what it was like. Uh, the Pharisees were very sort of rightish, legalistic people. Uh, the Herodians were sort of in bed with the, with the Romans, and uh, very very different agendas in life, didn't have any respect at all for one another. And here they are uh, asking Jesus this question. Now, it was a trap, as it says, they were trying to entangle him. If Jesus said, well, you're supposed to pay your taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees could say, well, this guy's betraying Israel. I mean, after all, Rome was the oppressor. They had actually killed, no, they actually had crucified thousands of Jewish people. The Romans already had by this time. Crucifixion was a very common thing in that day. Uh, And so uh, if Jesus said, pay taxes to Caesar, he was in trouble with the Pharisees. But if he said, no, don't pay taxes, the Herodians were, who were associated with King Herod and sort of the the Roman government, they'd run back to the king and, uh, and narc on him, and he'd be arrested and condemned as someone who subverted the law of Rome. And so Jesus answers them, and he says in verse 18, first of all, he just makes it clear to them that he wasn't fooled by their flattery. He says to them, why do you test me, you hypocrites, in verse 18? Then he says in verse 19, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, that was a Roman coin. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so... What Jesus was saying is this. He's saying, you know, you render to Caesar what is Caesar's, meaning Jesus was recognizing the basic principle that was taught throughout scriptures that you need to honor your authorities, that the people over you in authority, the mayor, the senators, the the president, uh, they were appointed there by God. Uh, Romans chapter 13 puts it in the most black and white terms. It says, let everyone, everyone should be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For because of this you also pay taxes For they, meaning the government officials, are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. It's like, wow, it's actually calling uh, our government officials God's ministers. Why is that? Well, it's not because these are Christians or these are covenant people or born-again people. He's calling them that because God appointed them there, and he appointed them there for our protection and and our... uh, you know, for our peace. In fact, Rome, it was the, there was what was called at the time the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was the greatest peace really in the history of the world. The Roman army really protected people. They may have been pretty brutal in how they did it, but the economy thrived and life thrived because they protected people. And there was the principle, you need to honor your authority. And Jesus is simply saying, you render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, don't you pay your taxes? But did he stop there? 
No, he didn't. He could have, but he didn't. And this is, in very, this is very important. The answer is this. Lest you give the... Um, Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to say, You render to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's, lest you give the authorities that which has been uh, reserved for God. So, yes, you're supposed to honor authorities. Yes, you are supposed to be subject to them. Yes, you are supposed to re- you're not supposed to resist them. But, that is, but the line is drawn there. The line is drawn there. Now, what, 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 where was he going with this? Well, these Roman coins, they're called the denarius. Actually, there's coin collectors all around the world who have these things. There's a lot of them that still exist. On one side, there was, the, uh, it, there was just the head. You've probably seen before, the head of Caesar, the image of Caesar. On the other side, it was actually a person bowing down or worshiping. Caesar, with the inscription under it that said Pontifus Maximus, or Supreme Pontiff, actually something that the Pope took over in the 5th century, that's what the Pope is called, the Supreme Pontiff, or High Priest, and and when Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God, uh, what he means to say is this, you give Caesar your taxes, but don't you give him anything that belongs to God. Render to Caesar his taxes, but render to God your life. That's what he means what he, when he says this. And the people it says there, it says they were astonished at this, at this response because it was just... It was just so God. It was so perfect. Now, um, when right around this very time, um, John records some different things that Jesus taught at this exact same time in the temple courts. Uh, it's, um, one of the things that John taught that Jesus taught at the same time was this. Jesus said, either right before or after uh, these verses here in Matthew 22, he, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, listen carefully, Assuredly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other places, Jesus says, he who loses his life for my sake will keep it for eternal life. So again, Jesus, when he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, Render to God what is God's. He's saying, you render to Caesar your taxes. You render to God your life. You know, it always troubles me in election time when you see a, some guy running for president or senator or something walk into a packed room. I mean, you would have thought it was Jerusalem in 33 AD on Palm Sunday. I mean, there's just a frenzy. And sometimes you'll see a packed room of people who call themselves Christians and they just get whipped up into a frenzy because of a human being. This really troubles me. They are rendering to God what is God's. Instead of uh, you know waving palm branches, they're waving something else. But and and but you know it, it scares me when people are lifting up their hands to a, a human being. And and should Christians participate in the political process? Absolutely. But should they think that politicians are going to save the day for the country, or for their lives, or or really anything? Absolutely not. It's an expression 
pardon its sort of meanness, but Democrats will take you to hell in a handbasket. Republicans will take you to hell in a Cadillac. You know, so that's what will happen if you sort of put your faith in political parties. And not, not that it's a sin to be registered or anything like that, but that is the truth. They, they, they are prom- they, they, you know, their promises as it pertains to the, the deep things of life are, are just as empty as any other promise apart from God. Don't render to Caesar what is God. But by all means, render to Caesar what is Caesar. That's what Jesus is saying. And so then, let's continue. In verse 23, they struck out. Let's see what the Sadducees can do. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So the Pharisees and Herodians struck out. Next here comes the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were sort of like a totally different sect of people. Did you ever get kind of discouraged about all the different denominations? Well, they had them then too. And and, and yet that doesn't mean just because there's many denominations, that doesn't mean there is not a truth, a true faith. And so all these different sects are coming to him. The Sadducees were not really a religious people uh, as we think of that term, although they did believe in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, They were really what I would call rationalists, something that we're very familiar here in Boston. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They were really wealthy. They had uh, usually held all the high political offices. In fact, uh, the Romans put the office of the uh, high priest up for auction every year, and it was always the Sadducees who would grab it up because it was really, it was, although it was called the office of the high priest, it was really a political office. The Sadducees, being the most wealthy, would you know, gobble up the office every year. It's usually the same family uh, that bought it um, every year, and different people in the family would, would hold it. And so today uh, they were a lot like, uh, for lack of a better word, the sort of the leftish educational establishment of today. They mocked the idea of a personal God. Uh, they mocked the idea that there was life after death. And, and you can uh, see the kind of mocking in their question here. They're, they're sort of mocking in their question. What they're doing, they're drawing from an Old Testament law. Uh, it's from the book of Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter 25, which 
it's a law. It mandates that uh, a brother is legally bound to marry his brother's widow. Uh, The law was for the purpose of protecting the widow and her children. It was also for the purpose of protecting the brother's name because what would happen was that the law required that the firstborn son of this this marriage would be named after the widow's first husband. It gets kind of complicated, but uh, if, you know... You were a guy and you had a bunch of brothers and you thought you were going to be single for the rest of your life, but one of your brothers uh, dies and he leaves a widow, sorry, had to marry her. And uh, that's the way it went. So they draw from this and they they bring it to sort of uh, uh, this in a very patronizing way. It reminds me so much of, of some segments of our society today. In this very patronizing way, they come up with this very foolish picture of heaven, of, of this place where this, you know, uh, this poor woman goes and she gets there and uh, she's like, oh no, there's Bill and there's Frank and there's Tim and there's, you know, uh, Leroy or whatever. What do I do about this, you know? And, and you know, it was just, it was just silly. It was silly and patronizing. And it's just so awesome because Jesus, with all the authority of heaven and earth, just nips it in the bud. He just says, you, ha- you guys don't know the scripture or the power of God. There is no marriage in heaven. Uh, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense, actually. And then he, he, and then this silenced them. And so now that he has them silenced and their mouth shut and them listening, he goes on to the real heart of the matter, which is the resurrection. Nothing can be more important than the, the, the issue of the resurrection. And he says in verse 31, he says, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead but the God of the living. So Jesus is quoting here from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God is identifying himself to Moses. And remember, the Sadducees did believe in those first five books of the Bible, and and so they would have accepted that God had, in fact, addressed Moses uh, this way. But the point is, is that the time God said that to Moses, Abraham was dead, so was Isaac and Jacob. But God is saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning they're alive. They're not dead. Nothing can be more important than this issue of the resurrection. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says this. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into the judgment but has passed from death to Life. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, If there is no resurrection, our faith is pointless and we are still in our sins. In other words, if there's no resurrection, we, must, we might as well just throw in the towel and go home. Paul goes on to say, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most miserable. And then he says, if there is no life after death, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. And you thought you, someone in your high school made that verse up. No, no, that, that came from the Apostle Paul. I don't know about you, but I say with Paul, 
the same thing. If this life is all to look forward to, we are the most miserable of people. You know, I think of what Tom Brady said, and I know I shared this a couple months ago, but Tom Brady, uh, the quarterback of our beloved Patriots, uh, by the time he was 28 years old, had already three Super Bowl rings. Super Bowl ring, the most coveted prize in the United States of America. He had three of them. And he's interviewed by 60 Minutes, and all he could say was this, you know, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? And I'm quoting here, and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't what it's all cracked up to be. And then he's asked by the interviewer, well, what's the answer? And he says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. King Solomon in the Old Testament had everything that the world strived after by the time he was 18 years old. He, he had all the fame, the power, and the money of anyone really possibly in the history of the world. And that not satisfying him, he went after pleasure, he went after work, he went after building projects. He went after wine, he went after women. Lots and lots of them. Music, poetry, adventure, science, and botany. There was a zoo in Jerusalem. You can go back in the book of Chronicles and, and read about it. There was a zoo. It was bringing in like apes and uh, zebras or whatever from all over the world and, and like little insects and botany. And he was like, I, something out there has got to satisfy me. And, and, and yet, at the very end, what does he say? Book of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. It's like chasing after wind. If there is no resurrection, if there is no afterlife, we are the most miserable of men. Paul actually goes on in Corinthians and, and, and says he concludes it one of the most awesome, uplifting uh, scripture in the Bible. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable is clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? If all we have is this life to look forward to, we are the most miserable of men. But notice how Jesus, uh, with these Pharisees, he's really tough on them. Look at verse 29. What does he say? Right out there in the open. And, the, and keep in mind, these are the most respected people in, this, in society. But, you know, criticize the Lord in public and you'll be criticized yourself. It says, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Let me tell you, the two are connected. If you don't know the scriptures, you will not know the power of God. If you don't know the scriptures, meaning either you don't know them because you've never heard them, or you've heard them and you just don't believe them, you will not know anything of the power of God in your life. And that's what Jesus is telling these people. The two are related to each other. 
If you go out on the streets of Boston and you round up the people who don't believe in the power of God, they don't believe in the supernatural, they don't believe that an all-powerful, all-loving God moves and acts in their life, rest assured, and we've talked to hundreds of them, and we know by now, they either don't know the Word of God or they do know it and don't believe it. Listen, this is so important. If you're taking notes, this is where to write. God will work in your life in the same measure that you, by faith, believe in his word. If you are one of those people who troll through the Bible and you pick out certain things you believe, uh, but the rest you leave for all the fruitcakes out there, you will see very little of the power of God in your life. And the Bible says, you know, the Bible says that Jesus was un- unable to perform miracles because of people's unbelief. And, and so the Sadducees as well, they did not know the power of God because they didn't believe in God's word. They didn't, the Bible was actually, even the Old Testament, it's, fairly, it's clear about the afterlife. They didn't believe the word of God. And so they had never experienced the power of God in their lives. So Jesus said, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. So now, it, the, the Sadducees were silenced by Jesus. In verse 33, it says, The multitudes looking on, they were astonished. And you've got to understand that it was a very stratified society in that most, by far, 90% of the people were just very simple, poor, working people. And their whole life, they had just seen these Sadducees, these Pharisees, these Herodians just putting up on a pedestal. I mean, these were the men in society. They were, I mean, these men were the ones who were on the cover of Jerusalem magazine or whatever, you know. And they were just used to seeing these men uh, constantly being exalted. And here they are, just completely silenced. It says, they were astonished by this. But there was one group, the Pharisees, who didn't want to give up. They're pretty soon to get, they're going to give up real soon. By the end of the chapter, we'll see uh, everyone gave up. But in verse 34, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, ugh, a lawyer, asked him a question, <laughs> testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You know, there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. And there were scribes and rabbis uh, who did nothing. Scribes. That just should put them both together. But... um, There were scribes and rabbis who did nothing with their life but study these things, and, and they, would, they would basically conclude to themselves, you know, you can't just have this law, this, one, this you know, number uh, 469. You have to add to it in order to add rules to it in order to know how to, to obey it. Like, you know, the fourth commandment said, you don't work on the Sabbath, but you need some rules about what is work. So there was over 600 rules underneath the fourth commandment. And in all, there was over... Uh, 60,000 rules by this time and every aspect of their life was governed by a rule and so what happened the purpose of the law had been completely lost the purpose of the law had been completely lost and you know this is just as much a problem today in the church 
as it was in Israel. If there's one thing I've noticed in my life, walking with the Lord for the last 18 years, it's that there's this tendency in my life constantly, even to this day, of trying to transform my relationship with God, my love relationship with God, into a bunch of rules. To the point where over time, my heart's on the rules and not on God. Rules about what to wear, rules about what to listen to on, uh, on the radio, rules about what TV I watch, rules about how long I pray, rules about how long I read the Bible, rules about what I do in my spare time and, you know, can't relax for more than 15 minutes without, you know, reading a scripture card or something, you know, what I can and can't say to people, how much money I give to church, you know, what holidays I celebrate, what I do on, uh, you know, on, on holidays, you know, pumpkins, Santa Claus, Easter eggs, whatever. What kind of car I should have, you know, a beat-up 1987 Ford Escort, that's okay, but a brand-new Volvo, forget about it. I mean, that's not spiritual. <laughs> what kind of jewelry, what kind of house, what kind of neighborhood I live in, what kind of vacation, you know, I'm in, you know, going to Hawaii to the Ritz-Carlton, that's out. I need to go and camp with the squirrels in the woods or something, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, that's really spiritual. Be like John the Baptist and eat, on, eat honey and stuff like that. But, you know... Please don't misunderstand me. Every single one of these issues is important in the life of a believer. Every single one of those decisions, we need to be, they need to be spirit-filled decisions. But don't forget what it is that God wants from you. He wants you to love Him with all your mind and soul and, and strength. That's what God wants from you. And, and, and that is what Jesus is saying. Turn with me for a second to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Just a few chapters to the right. There's some really, really radical stuff in verses 4 through 6. Verses that make people very squeamish. Romans 7, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. Now, what he's saying is that's a good thing, being dead to the law. That's what he means. It's a good thing. You have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But listen, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So I just want to go through a couple of those things that he says in, the, in those three ver- four verses, that we're to be dead to the law. We've been delivered from the law. We're no longer held by the law. Wow. You know, I, I read these verses like this to sometimes to Christians, and they get all bent out and say, oh, you saying we can go out and just run to the red light district and go into brothels and, you know, scream? And... That's not what it's saying. 
It's just saying that, you know, what do you have over your head? Is it the law or is it grace? What guides your life? Is it the law or is it the Spirit of God? And so Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, and He's saying to all of us, never forget what it is that God wants from you. He wants you to love Him. Isn't that what anyone wants from any relationship, to be loved? He wants us just to love Him. Now, He does, he, he, he does describe what that love looks like. It's, it, it's a love... He, it, back in uh, chapter 22 now, it, again, He says to love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's what He wants from us. Now, will we ever really be at the place that we're loving Him with all our uh, soul and and, and all our uh, mind and and, and all our heart? No. But that's what He wants from us. Now, is this love just merely sort of a feeling? You know, you go out on the streets and you ask people, do you love God? Most people say, oh yeah, I I love God. That's more of an emotional thing. But what does it mean to love God with all your heart? Well, that word heart there is the word um, cardia, from which we get cardiac arrest. And and, and actually what it means in the Greek is it has the concept of in the center, heart, in the center. And they had a word for a road in the middle of Greek cities, and it was the cardio. And, and it was just like we have this expression, the main artery. In other words, it's the street through which everything else, all life in the city goes through. And, and that's what it means to really love God with all your heart, that you filter everything through God. Again, not rules, but filtering everything through God, meaning, you know, what do I do with my work? What friends do I have? You know, what am I supposed to do today? What am I supposed to eat? What am I supposed to drink? But, but, but not, not to let those things be a preoccupation between us and God, but to love Him. We're bringing Him into our life, and we're saying, God, what do you want here? Not a law. Are you following me? It's not a law. It's, it's a relationship where we're, we're talking to Him. We're saying, God, what do you want here, Lord? Am I supposed to be, you know, in this city? Am I supposed to be in this job? Am I supposed to be in this relationship? It's taking it to Him. That's what it means to love God uh, with all your heart. Then He says, and love God with all your soul. Now, the soul uh, refers to our person, our desires, our passion. Are you passionate about the Lord? Or are you embarrassed about having the name of Jesus over your life? Do you have emotion like when you're talking about the Lord, any relationship. Who likes to be, what, what husband or wife would like to be in a marriage relationship with, where there's no emotion and passion there? That marriage is dead and needs to be revived. And, and, and so when we sing to the Lord, is it like spaghetti without meatballs? I mean, you know, is there real no life in the pasta? Is there joy there? When we worship the Lord, do, are we really loving Him? When we pray to Him, um, are, are, we really, uh, are we really seeking Him out? That's what it means to love Him uh, with, all, uh, with all your 
uh, soul. And then it says, with all your minds. And, and, and what that is talking about is, what are you doing with your mind? What are you doing with your idle time? What are you doing with the time where, which is empty? Or, 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 or when, it's, when you're actually using your mind? Are you do, using it to glorify God? Are you, are you using it to uh, think of what you can do for God and how you can do for God? And even when you're at work uh, d- throughout the day, and most of us are at work a b- the better part of a day in a secular job, are we thinking, how can I do this to really please the Lord? What are we doing with our mind? That's what loving the Lord with all your mind means, your, your thought life, your thought life. And so Jesus is saying, look, this is what God, all those 613 laws, this is what's behind every one of them. Love for God. And so then he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. And then it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. So they're silenced and they're all like, oh no, what do we do now? We've completely struck out. And, 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 but he wasn't going to let them go. He says, uh, he says, well now listen, I got a question for you now. And he says, uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? So what he's saying is if David called the Messiah, the Christ, Lord, that must mean that he's God. That's what he's telling him. In verse 46, it says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. I love that verse. That's, that's my Savior. And, you know, we can look at these, look at chapter 22, where, where these people are coming to Jesus, and we, we can sort of look at it almost like a boxing match where the only one left standing is Jesus and everyone else is like bloodied on the ground and we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, this type of thing. But really, this was happening for, a, a, there was a, a very important purpose to all of it. And that was Jesus was yet again, remember, he's about to go to the cross. He is establishing himself as who? As God. As God. He's the Son of God, and He wants that place in their hearts. And and all this was put uh, here so that we would give Him that place in our hearts. And, and you know, I'll close with this. In the parallel account in the book of Mark, it says after all these things, um, actually, it says after... uh, the, the, the one lawyer in verse 35 who went to him testing him and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Uh, and Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. The actually, the lawyer responded, uh, You are right. That is the greatest law uh, in the Old Testament. And then Jesus said to him, he said, he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And, and you know, I, I believe with all my heart that... It's one of those situations 
where the, this lawyer, this person testing was so close but yet so far because you know something? So much of us have the knowledge. We have the knowledge. We know the facts. We know who Jesus is. We know he, facts about him. We know he's God. We know all that. And But the Lord is telling us, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. We're not there yet. Why? We have never asked him in our life. We've never really given him that place of Lord and Master in our life. Jesus said to this person, and it was clear that this person was not coming to him with a sincere heart because it says in Matthew that they were coming to test him. They were just coming to try to entangle him. Jesus winds up saying to him, look, you're not very far from the kingdom of God. That lawyer knew. He knew all the stuff. We can come to church every Sunday. We can read our Bible. We can know all the facts about God. But we can be so close but yet so far from the kingdom of God. Because we don't just lay our side, you know, we may know that we're supposed to love God, but do we love him just by seeking after him and grasping him and ask him in our heart? The Bible says it's a very simple process, by the way, to pass from death to life. It is simply a prayer that is said by faith. Not of works, the Bible says, lest any man should boast before God, but it's by grace. And if anyone here is, has never done that in their life and asked Jesus and given him that place which is his in your life. If you've never recognized that you've, uh, you, that you've needed a, a Savior, but you now realize, wow, I need a Savior, and now I see him. He's right before my eyes here in the Word of God. If, if you've never done that and you would uh, like to ask him in your heart, please come up and pray with me after the service. But let's now, uh, let's now dismiss and rejoice and pray uh, that... Uh, that, that Jesus, this Palm Sunday, he came into the city. There's so much reason to rejoice. So much reason to rejoice. Our Savior has come. He has died, but he has been resurrected. And now the Bible says that we can have that resurrected life with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for this glorious word. We thank you for this glorious passage, Lord God, where this this happened, Lord, 2,000 years ago where you had thousands of people recognizing cut to the heart saying to themselves, I need a Savior and here He is and just the joy there, Lord, and and how it's true, Lord God, that, that that's what it's all about. It's about being joyful before you, rejoicing before the throne at you, Lord God. And, and, and we just do that today, and we thank you, Lord God, that there is a place, a, an altar, an altar of grace and mercy where we can come to enjoy, Lord God, unashamed, having been wiped clean uh, by the blood of Christ, Lord. We can come to you and receive grace and mercy in our time of need. We thank you for that, Lord. And we ask that we would go out now and live it, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, God bless you. And, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, just another reminder. I think Dave talked about it. Next Sunday, no Easter evening service. And we'll be, after the service, releasing our missions team to uh, Louisiana. Okay, God bless you.